questions you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome aboard. In 1980, a Ph.D. student monitored the seats in a dental waiting room for several days and noted that one specific seat directly opposite the reception desk was generally avoided by women. Then over several weeks, he sprayed this seat with a tiny amount of substance and observed that there was a marked increase in popularity by women and avoidance by men. What was the substance that he sprayed? Okay, so there's an interesting question for you. They sprayed a substance on a seat, and that led to the seat being avoided by men and being preferred by women. What was the substance sprayed on that seat? That's one question. We also have some questions left over from last week. Dr. James Barry was a British Army surgeon who graduated from Edinburgh Medical School at age 14, and had a long career in which he espoused cleanliness, diet, and smallpox vaccination. He was adored by patients, but not all colleagues who deemed him to be cocky and quarrelsome. But the doctor had a secret that was publicly revealed only upon his death. What was that secret? That's question number two. And we have one more left over from last week. What is wrong with the <clears throat> biblical story? of the walls of Jericho being brought down by the sound of trumpets. It says so in the book of Joshua, but what is wrong with that story? You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, myth from fact, and to make sure that you're up to date on what happens in the world of science. Well, today, of course, uh, we are getting ready to celebrate Valentine's Day. So obviously, we do have to make some reference to that. Classic rhyme of roses are red, violets are blue. Where does that come from? Believe it or not, the origins go back to a poem, and that takes us back to 1590 and a work called The Fairy Queen by Sir Edmund Spencer. And this is how it went. It was upon a summer shiny day when titan fair beams did display. In fresh fountains far from all men's view, she bathed with roses red and violets blue and all the sweetest flowers that in the forest grew. That takes us back to 1590. And then in 1784, there was a classic English nursery rhyme that was published. And that's the one that we're most familiar with. Here we go. The rose is red, the violet's blue, the honey's sweet, and so are you. Thou art my love, and I am thine. I drew thee to my valentine. The lot was cast, and then I drew, and fortune said it should be you. That's one that we'll see in all kinds of Valentine's cards uh, tomorrow. And there are over 200 million that are going to be delivered in North America. This is Hallmark's biggest day of the year. 
and uh, also the biggest day for selling roses and for selling chocolates. Roses. Well, they have always held a special place among flowers, particularly because of their associations with romance. In Greek mythology, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, fell in love with the mortal shepherd Adonis. When he was gored by a wild boar, her skin was pierced with the thorns of a wild rose as she rushed to his aid. When her tears mixed with blood dripped on the rose bush, it thenceforth produced the red roses that came to symbolize love and passion. Cleopatra is said to have covered her boudoir with rose petals when she welcomed Mark Antony, and guests at Roman orgies supposedly had their passions flamed by the scent of rose water in the air. The simplest form of rose water was produced by steeping rose petals in water. This certainly smelled like roses, but did not have exactly the same bouquet as a freshly picked flower. Rose fragrance is a complex mixture of dozens of compounds, some of which are water-soluble, others not. For example, geraniol, a major component of rose aroma, is water-soluble, but beta-damascenone, another important contributor, is not. A much more fragrant rose water became available with the introduction of the alembic, a basic distillation apparatus generally attributed to the Islamic alchemist Jabir ibn Haya in the 9th century. The alembic was a rounded flask with a long neck that to this day is identified with the practice of alchemy. A substance placed in the flask is heated from below, and the vapors formed then travel through the long neck where upon cooling they condense to a liquid that can be collected as it drips out from the end. When rose petals were placed in the alembic along with water, the steam that formed helped to vaporize the volatile components. The product of such steam distillation is the essential oil of the rose and floats on top of an aqueous layer called the hydrosol that contains the water-soluble components, and it is this hydrosol that is generally referred to as rose water. The essential oil, also known as attar of roses, is used in perfumery, while rose water can be used to flavor beverages or sweets, such as marzipan and Turkish delight. Rose attar can also be produced by agitating the petals in a vat with a solvent such as hexane. Such solvent extraction draws out the fragrant compounds along with waxes and pigments. Subjecting the extract to vacuum removes the solvent that can be recycled, leaving behind a waxy mass that is then treated with alcohol. The alcohol dissolves the fragrant components, and when it is evaporated under low pressure, the essential oil, or so-called absolute, is left behind. <clears throat> it can take more than 2,000 flowers to produce a gram of oil, which means that rosa tar is very expensive. This invites adulteration, generally by dilution with oil of geranium, which is rich in geraniol, but it's much cheaper. There's no health issue here, but such extended oils should not be referred to as pure attar of roses. So now you know something about the science behind roses and the reason that they are traditional gifts on Valentine's Day. They look beautiful, and of course, they also smell very nice. Now, just one more word about uh, 
the essential oil that I just described, because there are common misconceptions about this. Very often, the, the word essential is misinterpreted as, as referring to something that is, is important, especially when it comes to, to, to health. This is not what that essential means. It just means that it is the essence, in this case, of the rose. It is the mixture of compounds that are responsible for the fragrance of the rose. They, it doesn't have any sort of, of magical property. None of the so-called essential oils have any specific effect on, on, on health, except that they smell nice. And uh, uh, in some cases, they can brighten your mood because nice smells can do that. Uh, and in some cases, there is a modicum of evidence that oils such as, as uh, lavender oil can reduce anxiety and maybe make you sleep more easily. You can even buy pillows that are infused with lavender oil. But the, the science here is uh, is not, not very strong at all. Okay, I do have a text answer to one of my questions, and uh, that was about uh, Dr. James Barry, the British Army surgeon, and what that secret was. Well, an interesting secret. Barry was a woman and actually the first woman who ever graduated from a British medical school. Uh, it is not clear why she pretended to be a man, dressed as a man, and was able to carry on a career as a man, but she was a woman, and that was only revealed when she died. So we've taken care of that question, and um, uh, if you know the answer to my other questions, 514-790-800, you can also text your messages to 514-800. We're going to take a break and check what traffic is all about. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Okay, there's still some questions outstanding, and one of them was, what is wrong with the biblical story of the walls of Jericho being brought down by the sound of trumpets? I already had a comment online about that from a, a, a character who repeatedly sends silly comments, uh, who says, uh, who suddenly appointed me as an authority or scholar to criticize the Holy Bible? Have I run out of questions to concoct? Of course, it's just because he doesn't know the answer. It has nothing about... Uh, uh, decrying the the Bible. It's a, just an interesting story about the walls of Jericho being brought down by the sound of trumpets and why that did not uh, happen. Uh, I had, still do have one more question left over from last time. Uh, Christopher Wren's monument to the Great Fire of London in 1666 is exactly 202 feet high. Why is that? So why is that? F fantastic monument in London, tall, tall uh, tower, uh, and made by, uh, designed by Christopher Wren, who of course also designed St. Paul's Cathedral. And why is it exactly 202 feet high, this monument to the Great Fire of London? You can give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text us at, at uh, uh, 500 uh, Kenneth is on the line. Kenneth. Hello. Hi. Um, look up the uh, Red Rose Tea Band. They had a couple of them in the 50s and 60s. And then we were called Marquee Chimps. Uh, Enoch 
Susie, Baron, and Hans. And um, oh. something else that might be of interest, I heard it uh, w- uh, many years ago. There was a song by an uh, old couple called John and Marsha, but people didn't realize that they were having hearing problems, so they always thought they were in love, saying, Marsha, Marsha, John, John. She was calling him from the garden, and he was answering her in the kitchen. <laughs> they were definitely, people okay. thought they were in love, Marsha and John. Thanks for that. Yeah. All right, I got another uh, Valentine story for, for you guys. Uh, Matt Valentine of Richmond, Virginia, loved his wife. So understandably, he was very, very disturbed when she fell ill and seems to be seemed to be getting worse and worse. She was unable to eat solid foods. She had some sort of, of digestive disorder. Uh, doctors were of no help, really, and Matt decided to take matters into his own hands. He decided that uh, he was going to come up with something to strengthen her. And he knew something about the ancient Greek idea of muscle to muscle. Uh, I mean, the ancient Greeks, you know, used to eat uh, the flesh of animals in hope of, of gaining strength. So he wondered whether or not he could make use of this idea. So he went down to his basement and he tried to figure out a way to extract the essence of the meat. And he cooked the meat and he squeezed it and extracted this, this juice. He gave it to his wife and she seemed to improve. In fact, to such an extent that he decided he had to make this information public. And within a year, he set up a, set up a company and began producing Valentine's meat juice. And it was sold in an iconic uh, pear-shaped amber bottle. Uh, sales boomed because doctors said that uh, they gave it to their patients and they all felt better. Valentine became a wealthy man from the sales of his meat juice. But there's an interesting sort of uh, footnote to this story. Maybe even more than a footnote. Because it seems that Valentine just reinvented the wheel. He was apparently unfamiliar with Liebig's extract of meat that had been introduced in Europe in 1865. And that was concocted by Justus von Liebig, a German chemist and one of the most noted scientists of the time. And Liebig had noted that there were nitrogen compounds present in urine. And therefore, he thought that these came from the breakdown of muscle because he knew that muscle was made of protein, which also contains uh, nitrogen. And meat was very expensive at that time in Europe. And he thought that people couldn't afford it and therefore their health uh, would suffer. So he thought that maybe he could come up with something that was affordable, that was some sort of a concentrated essence of, of meat very similar to what Valentine in in North America uh, thought. So Liebig found that soaking lean meat in a dilute solution of hydrochloric acid and then squeezing it into a paste and then straining this paste yielded a meat extract. And he published this information and doctors and druggists began to make their own samples of what they then called beef tea. And again, they sang the praises of this. But Liebig heard about this, and, and you know he also thought that this had all kinds of benefits, but he knew that there was not much of a commercial possibility here because meat was very expensive in Europe at that time, and uh, it was very laborious also to make his extract. 
But luckily for him, he met George Gebert, who was a German engineer who had been in South America because he had been building roads in, in Brazil. And he knew that there were lots of cattle in Brazil uh, and that very often these animals were raised just for their hide and the meat was thrown away because this was before the days of canning, before meat could be properly uh, preserved. So he had an idea that why wouldn't they, together with Liebig, buy a cattle farm in South America, import the machinery needed to convert the meat into the extract from Europe, and set up a business? And thus it happened. In 1865, the Liebig Extract of Meat Company was formed, and soon the product hit the marketplace, and Liebig himself, of course, promoted it extensively, uh, sometimes a bit too extravagantly, saying that it was even possible to allay brain excitement with this uh, product. There were a number of copycats products, like Bovril, for example, and there was a lot of competition. And uh, Liebig uh, said that people should only buy his authentic product because that was checked carefully by him and it had his signature on, on, on the label. However, soon there were problems. Uh, why? Because uh, studies showed that actually there was very little protein in this extract. And then in 1868, a German physiologist published his result of an experiment in which dogs exclusively fed on the meat extract uh, soon died. This was not good for publicity. <laughs> and in 1872, another physician, Edward Smith, declared that Liebig's extract lacked the nutrients of meat and was like, quote, the play of Hamlet without the character of, of Hamlet. So the aura of uh, Liebig's meat extract as a medicine faded, and the Liebig company switched to promoting it as an inexpensive source of meat flavor that could be used by sailors, explorers, soldiers, and domestic cooks to produce a nutritious and tasty soup. All they had to do was to add some potatoes and some vegetables and make a broth from this extract. And then there was another piece of brilliant advertising that they came up with. Liebig trading cards that came with each bottle. These were beautifully colored cards that at first depicted kitchen scenes with cooks preparing the soup, but then expanded into portrayals of scientists, writers, composers, and, and, and various scenes from history. The cards became collector's items, and uh, their addition to, to uh, the marketing is regarded as one of the most successful advertising campaigns in, in history. The Liebig Meat Extract Company no longer exists, but one of its products, the Oxo Bouillon Cube, developed in 1911, is still around. Advertised in an ingenious fashion, in 1920, the Liebig Company purchased a building in London that featured a tower they planned to equip with an illuminated advertising sign. They were refused permission, and then they redesigned the, the tower three windows to have the letters O and X spell out Oxo. All right, back to Mrs. Valentine. Unfortunately, she passed away just two years after her husband introduced his meat juice. But the profits from the product were enough to allow him to indulge in his passion for collecting artifacts that were eventually displayed in the Valentine Museum in Richmond. Founded in 1898, the museum that Meat Juice built has become a major attraction with exhibits depicting 
the Sissi's uh, rich history. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check the CTV news and be right back. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. I think Jerry has a comment. Jerry. Hi, Dr. Joe. I'm just wondering if it's... Uh, so Christopher Wren built it uh, 202 feet high because he's 202 feet exactly from where the fire started. That's right. That's exactly correct. Uh, have you ever it's... seen the uh, monument? No, it's funny. I've been to London, and I, I guess I I don't know why. I, I saw a picture of yeah. it as I was uh, researching this, and uh, certainly on uh, on the menu for the next time. Looks impressive. It stands, yeah, you're right. I mean, exactly 222 feet from from uh, the Pudding Lane location, mm-hmm. which was Thomas Fariner's Bakery, and uh-huh. that's where the fire started, and that was in September 2, 1666. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's an interesting uh, little addition to that story: Pudding Lane was one of the world's first one-way streets. In uh-huh. order restricting uh, cart traffic to one-way travel on Pudding Lane. Uh, and uh, eventually there were, of course, other one-way streets in, in, in London. The, the best-known one is Albemarle Street, uh, which was made one-way in 1800 because that's where the Royal Institution is located, where the famous public lectures by Humphrey Davy and Michael Faraday were delivered on Friday uh-huh. nights. And so many people flocked to those lectures that they had to make the street one way. So, yeah, very good. Good that you knew the answer to that one. Thanks again for all those questions. All right. Well, yeah, I I will replace this with with another one. Uh, What is the link between nail polish and Jules Verne's classic science fiction novel from the Earth to the Moon? That's our next question. You got any idea? I have no idea. From the Earth to the Moon? Oh, my goodness. Well, Jules Verne's uh, classic book was from yes. the Earth to the Moon. Is it the propellant I'm... for the rocket? Yes. Which was what? <laughs> well, I guess if I'm looking at it, it would have to be like a peroxide or maybe a formaldehyde? No, it was no. nitrocellulose. Oh, nitrocellulose. nitrocellulose. Yeah, nitrocellulose is made by by reacting cellulose, essentially cotton with nitric acid and sulfuric acid. Mm-hmm. And uh, that makes for a very, very explosive substance. And uh, this is what, uh, in, in the book, From the Earth to the Moon, uh, the head of the uh, gun club, uh, Mr. Barbicane, suggested to use to launch the, the, uh, the projectile towards uh, the moon. And uh, this is also the stuff that is used to make nail polish. Really? When you make nail polish, you, you need to have a substance that, of course, stays behind when the solvent evaporates. Mm-hmm. And uh, nitrocellulose is dissolved in a solvent, which usually is ethyl acetate. And uh, you brush it on. And when it evaporates, uh, you have this layer of nitrocellulose. Of course, the layer is very, very thin, so you don't have to really worry about bursting into in, into. Can they flames. color that? Is can that be colored, yes, or is it just a clear one? And uh, the various pigments, of course, oh, really, are added eh? to oh. it. Yeah, you can add the glitter to it, and and yeah, oh, but that's excellent. the interesting, uh, in, interesting connection. And then, of course, there's the famous story of the um, discovery of nitrocellulose. Uh, somewhat apocryphal, but but 
with a grain of truth. And that was in the 1850s when a Swiss chemist, Friedrich Schönbein, uh, took his work home and he was playing around with some sulfuric and nitric acid, which he happened to spill on the floor. And luckily for him, Mrs. Schönbein wasn't home at the time, but he decided he better clean up this mess, which he did by grabbing his wife's apron that was hanging on the wall. And he mm -hmm. wiped up the apron, he, the mess with the apron, but then he had this uh, wet apron on his hands and he knew he better dry it before she reappeared. And he hung it up in front of the fireplace to dry. And the next thing that uh, uh, he realized was that the apron caught fire and disappeared in a flash without any smoke. And thus was born smokeless gun cotton, gun oh, and which, uh, which eventually, of course, became the gunpowder that uh, is the smokeless gunpowder that is still used to this day. And of course, uh, as we also said, uh, used as a propellant in, in cannons and also to leave the film uh, from uh, nail polish. Scientists, so there you go. Discoveries are often serendipitous, aren't they? They are. <clears throat> Very often they are serendipitous, but the thing is that you have to recognize that a yeah. discovery has been made yeah. because, you know, someone else may have just said, uh, gee, you know, where do I go to buy another apron? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, exactly. uh, but he, you know, he realized that uh, indeed a discovery had been made and eventually was able to uh, capitalize uh, on that. Uh, nitrocellulose is a multi, uh, multi interesting uh, chemical because when it's mixed with uh, uh, camphor, it can be made uh, into a substance that looks very much like ivory called celluloid. And oh. that was the world's first, uh, oh. first real plastic made in the 1800s. Oh. And celluloid is uh, uh, today uh, relatively rare because uh, it's very flammable. Uh, there's really only one commercial item that is still made from uh, from nitrocellulose mixed with camphor, and that is the ping pong ball, because ah. no other substance has been found to have exactly the same bouncing ability as the, uh, the ping pong ball made of of celluloid. That's why they uh, burn celluloid it also. Yeah, oh, you can burn it. I, oh, I, yeah. uh, I, I don't encourage people to do no. that, of, of course, no. but I, uh, I, I've done it as a demonstration, a chemical demonstration in a fume hood, and it's very, very impressive. Uh, so celluloid is a, historically a very interesting item, and it, it's collectible. And uh, I've got a few cellulose items that date back to the late 1800s, uh, especially a set of two horses, small horses, that look just like they were made of ivory hmm. and uh, really beautifully uh, designed. So, yeah, I, celluloid is a very, very interesting uh, uh, item. It was also used to make billiard balls at one time because uh, uh, there was a shortage of ivory in the late 1800s. And uh, ivory, of course, comes from the tusk of, of, of elephants. And uh, this was the classic material that was used to make billiard balls. But because of the shortage, there was a shortage of billiard balls. And a company put out uh, a call to anyone who could find a substitute for ivory in billiard balls. Uh. 
And uh, many inventors, of course, uh, took up that challenge and tried to come up with uh, uh, with it. But eventually, it, it was uh, a particular type of, of nitrocellulose that, that was tried. Uh, it didn't work all that well for the reason that you might guess, because when the balls bumped into each other with too much vigor, uh, sometimes the friction would be enough to, to spark them and the balls would... Uh, burst into flame Yikes. but uh, yeah there was a time when uh, uh the billiard balls were made of uh of did, uh, did they also celluloid. make movie film from that uh, dr joe yes of course okay, uh yeah. cellulose uh, as well, right? uh, it was nitrocellulose was the the first material that was used uh, as the base for film because mm -hmm. it could be coated with silver compounds uh -huh. And uh, the the problem was, of course, that when you're projecting through it, uh, the lamp produces a lot of heat, mm -hmm. and the film would sometimes catch fire. And there were a number of of terrible fires in movie theaters caused mm -hmm. by uh, the celluloid bursting at the flame. One of them right here in in, in Montreal. Yeah. And uh, because of that, here in Montreal, children were yeah. not allowed into movie theaters for a long time. Uh, something, you know, from the late 1940s to, to 1960s, children yeah. were not allowed to go to uh, to movies because of the uh, terrible uh, fire. Yeah, I so, think it was 14 or 16 and over. Yeah, I think if I'm not... Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yes, you're quite right. It was mm -hmm. uh, a problem. It was extremely flammable. Mm -hmm. And today, there's also another issue, is many of the old movies, of course, are on nitrocellulose ah. film and they are degrading with time. And so some of those old classics, uh, unless they are you know, transferred uh, digitally, mm -hmm. are going to be lost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the story of, uh, of nitrocellulose and the connection between nail polish and Jules Verne's classic, From the Earth to the Moon. All right, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check for uh, traffic, and we'll be right back. My question about the conundrum about the biblical story, the walls of Jericho being brought down by the sound of trumpets? Well, history records that Canaanite towns of that era, in fact, had no walls. <clears throat> so there were no walls to be brought down by the trumpets. Jean-Pierre, I think, has a comment. Yes. Okay, last Hi. week you talked about those towers they used to make lead shot. Yes, the shot towers, yeah. Yeah, how how did the guy? It's the guy who invented that thing. How did he come up with the with the invention? I, I think. Well, the story is anyway that he watched droplets of water come from a, a faucet, and that eventually they, you know, they didn't start out as round, but as they fell, they uh, became total round drops. I read I another, another story about that. And the story that? said that the guy actually dreamed of it when he was asleep. He dreamed that someone was dripping lead on him, and it formed little boats and little balls. And uh, when the air cooled them down, and they reached the bottom, uh, each in the little ball. But the guy actually dreamed of it. Why did he dream that someone was pouring lead on him? <laughs> well, dreams are crazy. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? We'll never be able to confirm that one, right? 
Okay, anyway, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, I talked about the shot tower uh, last week, especially the, the one that's here in Montreal, which you can see from the canal when you jog or bicycle ride or snowshoe or whatever along the canal. Uh, it is right there. It's just a couple of blocks east of the Atwater Market. And uh, many of you have walked by there probably many times, never thought anything of it, probably thought it was a big chimney or something. Uh, but there it is, the Montreal Stelco Shot Tower. All right. Well, tomorrow being Valentine's Day, <clears throat> it is almost illegal not to talk about chocolate. But let's get something straight right off the bat. Chocolate is not an aphrodisiac, and it does not cause people to fall in love. On the other hand, it may lift our spirits. Uh, anyway, the aphrodisiac story is an ancient one. It goes back all the way to 1519 and the first visit of the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortes to Mexico. Cortes found, much to his liking, in particular the Aztec princess, Donna Marina. Apparently, the affection was returned because the princess introduced Cortes to a drink made from the pods of a tree, which the Aztecs called chocolatl, or food of the gods. The concoction was also laced with dried chili peppers, and as Donna Marina said, would, quote, stimulate amorous adventures. Cortes must have been impressed by the effects because on his return to Spain, he presented Emperor Charles V with a sample of cocoa, as we call the substance today. Within a few years, Europeans were indulging in chocolate and singing its praises. Everyone except nuns, that is, they were forbidden to partake of chocolate's pleasures because of the potential consequences. But alas, chocolate does not have aphrodisiac properties. The myth can be ascribed to the presence of general stimulants like caffeine, theobromine, and the newly discovered anandamide in chocolate. Chocolate actually contains over 300 compounds, with imposing names like furfural alcohol, dimethyl sulfide, phenylacetic acid, and phenylethylamine. It is this last amphetamine-like substance which has been alluringly labeled as the chemical of love. People in love may actually have higher levels of phenylethylamine. You'll see it in the press, usually abbreviated as PEA. They have higher levels in their brain as surmised from the fact that their urine is richer in a metabolite of this compound. In other words, people thrashing around in the throes of love pee differently from others. This observation has stimulated the following thought process. Falling in love is associated with higher PEA levels. Chocolate contains PEA, therefore chocolate can make us fall in love. Sounds pretty good, but not so. Blood levels of phenylethylamine do not rise after eating chocolate. It seems that the most of this enchanting compound is metabolized during digestion. Furthermore, chocolate isn't even a very good source of phenylethylamine. Sauerkraut is much better but that doesn't make for nearly as good story on Valentine's Day. So then, why are we so infatuated with chocolate? Could it have something to do with anandamide, a compound the brain normally produces to signal pleasure? Indeed, anandamide receptors can be stimulated by foreign substances such as tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. 
it bears a chemical similarity to anandamide and therefore triggers pleasurable sensations. Chocolate contains anandamide itself, so should it not have the same effect? Probably not. The amount of anandamide in chocolate is actually very little when compared with the amount produced naturally by the body. An adult would have to eat more than 10 kilos of chocolate to get a buzz. Well, maybe a little less. A couple of other recently isolated compounds from chocolate, n ethanolamine and N-linoleoethanolamine, inhibit the breakdown of anandamide and may result in higher blood levels. We're still not done. There is yet another candidate for the secret behind the appeal of chocolates. Endorphins are a class of naturally occurring substances synthesized in the human brain in response to a variety of stimuli. In general, they have been linked to effects similar to those caused by opium. Runner's high, for example, has been ascribed to endorphin production. According to some researchers, chocolate stimulates endorphin release. This hypothesis is based on the observation that when volunteers are treated with naloxone, a drug that blocks the effects of endorphins, they get no more pleasure out of eating Snickers or Oreos than from eating celery sticks. Chocolate, of course, is also high in carbohydrates, mostly sugar. Numerous studies have shown that carbohydrates increase the levels of an important brain chemical known as serotonin. This substance has decided antidepressant effects. In fact, several common antidepressant medications work by increasing concentrations of serotonin in the brain. But do we really have to get into the nitty-gritty of complex brain chemistry to explain our love affair with chocolate? Can it not be that this combination of flavors, sugar, and fats, which melt exactly at body temperature, just tastes great? Well, sure it can. This, however, brings up another problem. Something that tastes so good can't possibly be good for us. But you know what? There actually has been some seductive research about the benefits of eating chocolate, particularly dark chocolate. Again, I don't want to overplay this, but there have been some studies that have shown uh, a link between reduction of heart disease with increasing chocolate consumption. A provocative study in human volunteers has shown that 35 grams of defatted cocoa, amount found in seven cups of hot chocolate, had a significant impact on preventing the oxidation of LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol. But you know what? Uh, no one is going to eat enough chocolate to have that kind of, of, of benefit. The fact is that chocolate tastes good and it can stir up emotions in people who think that it should stir up emotions. So it is still a very appropriate gift to be delivering on Valentine's Day, but don't think of it as actually having a physiological effect. But you can pair it with uh, a nice bouquet of roses, give it to your loved one, and uh, hopefully you will reap the benefits. That's it. So happy Valentine's Day to everyone out there. And uh, we have once more run out of time. But of course, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>